You're listening to Shift Happens. Flower Power Hour. <laughs> This is the largest group of people ever assembled in one place. The important thing that you've proven to the world is that a half a million kids, and I call you kids because I have children older than you are, a half a million young people can get together and have three days of fun and music and have nothing but fun and music. And I God bless you for it. A rock music festival that drew hundreds of thousands of young people to a dairy farm in White Lake, New York over the weekend came to an end today. We have a report from Richard O'Brien. They listened for three days, and today they sounded the retreat and headed for home. The sponsors said it was going to be three days of peace and music. It was that all right, and much more. Estimates of the crowd ranged up to more than 300,000, and it was that size that caused most of the trouble, that and the rainstorms that turned the big dairy meadow into a mud farm. The big problem was that no one, no one had even the slightest notion that they would come in such numbers. Today, wearied but still light of heart, they huddled their masses and set out for home. And they headed in every direction. As one official pointed out, with 300,000 people, you are not dealing with just a crowd, but virtually a city. And as a city, it had city problems. One youngster died of a suspected overdose of heroin. Eighty others were arrested on drug charges. Another boy killed when the driver of a tractor failed to see him inside a sleeping bag. One of the promoters says he wouldn't try this again unless he could rent the Grand Canyon. He may have to. Already there are threats of lawsuits from local business people who called it a disgrace. The kids said it was just great. And so it's all over except for the massive cleanup job that remains. The Woodstock Music and Art Fair, having done its thing, quietly folds its tent and steals away. Till another day. Richard O'Brien, CBS News, White Lake, New York. The folk rock music festival, which brought 350,000 people to a rural area two hours from New York City, finally ended at dawn's early light. But while the music is over, the aftertaste lingers on. Max Yasker's neighbors are upset because he leased his farm to a rock music festival. This is another. More than 350,000 people, mostly young people, showed up to hear the greatest rock groups in the country. The promoters billed it as three days of peace and music. And for most people, it was just that. Little thanks to the promoters. There were many problems. Like not enough sanitation facilities, food, or water. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. How long have you been here? About two weeks. 
And there was, as one would expect with 350,000 20th century youth, drugs. I think the thing is more people around here than dope. You don't think it's getting out of hand? No, I don't think anything's out of control. Uh, everything I've seen has been a very together thing. turning people on to a different kind of living from the city. That's what's happening out here. It'll be two or three days before all the people leave the peace and quiet of the Catskill Mountains. It may be longer before this area returns to normal. Despite the problems, and there were many problems, so they were not as great as many people believed, this weekend says a lot about the youth of America. More than 350,000 people came looking for peace and music. Many said they learned a lot about themselves and learned a lot about getting along together and priorities. And for most, that alone makes it all worthwhile. Lem Tucker, NBC News, in upstate New York. Well, that was Woodstock. Lots of Not the best audio, I apologize, but I pulled that off the web and created a little montage there. I thought it was brilliant. Well, thank you very much, Greg. So Coming from you, that's a big compliment. Well, it compliment. sure brought back a lot of memories, just hearing those iconic news voices yeah. again yeah. and um, talking about the Woodstock Festival. And it was interesting how they did key on the peaceful aspect of a, what turned out to be half a million people with no services and no crime. Yeah. And just maybe two or maybe three deaths, two that I know of for sure. And um, there was another guy that died, I think, of appendicitis, but he was in transit at the time, I think. So on site, we had at least two, maybe three. One of them, someone got run over by a tractor, right? Yeah, actually, I alluded to that in the book. I was, it was Sunday morning. I was standing up in front of the operations trailer at the top of the hill, and a uh, young, obviously local-looking guy came up, and he was just white as a ghost, and he came up to me and says, I think I just killed somebody. So I immediately directed him inside the operations trailer, and I found out later he had accidentally driven over somebody who was sleeping on road, uh, kind of a farm road in the twilight, uh, the early dawn, and didn't see him, and... Hmm. Unfortunately, drove over. Good way to go, though. You I died at Woodstock. I suppose. Uh, when you make it to the pearly gates, I mean, they'll say, hey, how was it, man? 
Well, yeah, I don't think that you can really equate Woodstock to heaven. Um, uh, Depends I would, on what I would, you were on, I think. Well, I, it, just based on the uh, general accommodations and conditions, I, I would imagine that you know, I really don't know right. for sure. Maybe it was. And, you know. So for those of you who are just joining us or joining us on Sunday... We are talking with Greg Walter, who wrote a book called Woodstock, A New Look. Greg was at Woodstock. He was uh, an employee of the Woodstock Festival. And uh, he's going to be doing a book reading and a discussion of the subculture and its current relevance. And that's on December 6th at the Hume Hotel at, in the Fred Hume Room. And the doors open at 5.30 for the book reading, and at 7 will be a discussion. No, actually, the doors are at 5.30, book reading is at 7, and then at 9 o'clock uh -huh. we're having a discussion okay. of the counterculture and its relevance in today's society. Oh, cool. I don't know, counterculture? Like I don't think that would be really popular in <laughs> Nelson and area, do you? Well, it was considered a counterculture or a subculture at the time. All right. Uh, whether it's not embedded into the Kootenays is a whole other story. But actually, that's one of the things that I'm looking for is to uh, get discussion. It's going to be a town hall meeting type of uh, thing in the, in the latter part of the evening and to get people's input on what the subculture was or how right. they s perceive it, uh, particularly people that uh, were born after it, like uh, you find people, um, and also perhaps what relevance it plays in today's society um, for better or for worse. I would imagine mostly for better, but if there is a worse side, uh, I would like to hear about that as well. I think the Kootenays could be consider considered a subculture as well. Oh, it definitely is. And uh, I think the subculture actually exists in a lot of different forms and varying degrees, particularly with back-to-the-land people and other uh, enclaves. Even um, some of the uh, punk music is... Uh, extension of the mm -hmm. stock generation as it turns out that's according to a real life punk person that i talked to one time and she that's what she told me so was that because they were a bunch of punks on the stage back in 69 no i think it was more that what the way she expressed it was that and you alluded to it earlier the the idealism and the hope that yeah. was with our uh this movement or this subculture and then when that basically got destroyed I think it got destroyed as opposed to destroying itself, but you can mm -hmm. ask me why I think that later. Um, the next generation uh, were pretty bummed out. Right. And it might be what you expressed in the first hour was that you should have been born earlier so you could be part of that. So maybe there's the, the angst or the uh, feeling that, that we thought we were going to win. I mean, we thought we might win. Not win, but at least have our have cultural values yeah. recognized and embedded in society more than they were. I think that's part of the power of music, though. I mean, the reason why I have this uh, wonderful memory, and it wasn't a memory, but I enjoy the memories as they were put down by musicians, for example, right? And then you see the photographs afterward. You just catch the vibe. You catch the energy of that time. And I know for myself, I mean, I'd be at the at the front of the line. And, yeah, it, it would have been such a cool, cool thing 
to be at, and you were right in the middle of it. I mean, you actually were there at the very beginning to set up the stage. Yeah, I was actually on two different sites. I was on the Wallkill site, which uh, was before Max Yasger's site. I worked mm-hmm. for them uh, on that site for about a week and a half. And then we lost that site, and then I moved up to Yasker's farm, and we had four weeks, uh, two days less than a month, like four weeks exactly, pretty much, by the time we got to Max Yasker's till the festival actually happened. Right. And I worked throughout that period of time. And then during the festival itself, I got uh, put on uh, side stage security for the remainder of the... Mm-hmm. So Did I've- you have to carry a gun, too, for security? Uh, well, we didn't really need guns. No. Uh, we had flowers. It was America, <laughs> after We all. had flowers. You had oh, flowers, okay. yeah. All right. Remember? You flower power? Flower power. You betcha. I mean, the iconic picture, which I th- is, I don't know if I got, it made it into my book, but, you know, the flower yeah, in the, in in the, the barrel of the gun. Right. And, you know, and I think that we were definitely uh, very pacifist. The last thing we would have needed was uh, mm-hmm. weapons. Mm-hmm. We had our ideals. Mm-hmm. One of the things that occurred to me reading your book and finding out that there were a whole lot of city New York City police that had originally been hired for mm-hmm. security who were then told that if they did the job, they'd lose their day job and quit. That perhaps the fact that you didn't have any official security was part of the reason why the whole festival came off so peacefully. I I'm I'm not sure. I, I think that it is quite amazing that we were able to pull that off uh, with the help of the hog farm and uh, some of us on, on the crew that got bumped up into security and then some of the people that they were able to find hired. But the um, people that we hired from the New York City Police Department had been pretty vetted yeah. as far as tolerance goes. And right. I think they would have done a great job. And I actually think it probably would have been beneficial if we had them. them. Yeah, for sure. Because mm-hmm. um, although we pulled it off, we were only able to secure the heliport, the performance pavilion, area around the stage, and area around the uh, the operations area. And other than that, we had to let everything go. So mm-hmm. I think that if we'd had the uh, NYPD guys there, they could have manned the key positions, and it would have left us free to actually... Uh, do more security and help on the grounds instead right. of having to be stuck in one area to do security. Right. So a question that comes to my mind, because you're talking about at the very onset, when you were building the stages and setting up for the upcoming gig, did you have any intuition that it was going to be as big as it actually became? Well, I did, actually. Yeah. Um you're psychic or? No, I just, I'm logical. Okay. I just looked at the entire picture and about a week before the festival, and maybe I am a bit psychic in that I can usually feel the vibe. Mm-hmm. And I figured, um, I did the math, and I figured we were going to be able to max out at about 400000 and I saw no reason based on the fact that everybody that I knew from the time we'd heard about this festival was planning on going. It, as I said in the book, uh, going wasn't even a question. I mean, you were going. Everybody was going. So that kind of led me to believe. Uh, I had the advantage. I wasn't in administration. I was actually a worker on the ground. So I think, in a way, I had a better feeling for what was going on than, than the promoters. Right. Because they were coming and going and just picking up on vibes and had a million things on their minds. Whereas we were just 
going to work every day at eight, working till about eight at night, mm-hmm. and kind of just were there. Do you know how many of you there were preparing the site? There was only sixty official Woodstock Ventures employees. Uh, the stage was contracted out, concessions was contracted out, security was contracted out, except it didn't work. Um, but actual Woodstock employees, including administration, um, our main job was to build a playground area, the crafts area, and just do site overview, you know, trying to pick where to put different things. And, like the mosh pit? Uh, we didn't mosh back then, yeah. No? no okay. No. <laughs> All right. See, maybe you weren't. Maybe we're born at the right time, you know. Maybe mush pit. <laughs> there might have been mush pits. Yeah, that was a big freaking mush pit. Yeah, the the book thing. I I do want to mention that this is a Kootenai Co-op Radio uh, event that's happening a week from tomorrow, uh, mm-hmm. Wednesday. And for those of you listening on Sunday, it's this coming Wednesday. And uh, quite a bit of the percentage of is actually going of the gross is going directly to Kootenai Co-op Radio. And the ticket price is $35, but that does include a book, and the retail value of the book is $35. So we're kind of keeping our fingers crossed that yeah. uh, uh, the book got quite good reviews. It's 144 pages. It's a picture book. Coffee it's a table. great book. Yeah, it, it turned out quite well. I think that uh, Harvard, St. John's, UC Berkeley, uh, David Tipper Collection of Significant 20th Century Photography, a bunch of library systems uh, all adopted it. And somebody asked me if you had your choice of making a ton of money and, or being in Academica liking it, I, the bigger part of me would have said gone for the Academica, yeah. actually. You know, because it's was a historic event and being a nonfiction it was a, a pretty steep hill to climb in order to make it accessible um mm-hmm. my editors uh, and i we took out a lot of anything that was like a value judgment uh we tried to make it really as objective as possible right. and and let people read into it what the context was as opposed to saying we were this we were that you right. know just just you know, mm-hmm. just the facts, as they used to say on Dragnet, just the facts. Man. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a really nice story and, and gave you a real glimpse into what it was like to be there. Well, I, I appreciate that. And, and and also, if I can interrupt, it's the setup, too. I mean, it was what was going on in your life before all of it happened. I mean, I thought that was really fascinating, too. Well, that was one of my main motivations for writing the book, and that all the other books were just music-centric. Mm-hmm. And... Woodstock did not happen in a vacuum, mm-hmm. and it was more than the music. I mean, there was a lot of frustration and bewilderment amongst my generation at the time, and because of things that happened. So the book actually starts out with me describing uh, my impression of what happened at the Democratic National Convention in Chicago in 1968, which turned into a police riot. And I know that it was the Democratic Party. It was not the Republican Party. So we were very... They're all the same anyway. Well, I won't necessarily agree with that, but we were totally disenfranchised from any of the mainstream... uh, Politics. Yeah, exactly. So Mm -hmm. that was my primary motivation, and I figured I could pull it off because I'd taken about 80 pictures, and I was a semi-professional photographer at the time, and the, nobody had ever seen these pictures, so I had pictures of my own, and I had the story, 
And so I started the book, writing the book in 1999. It finally got published in 2008. So, On a technical note, what uh, camera did you use? I had a Yashica Teal Super with yeah. a Pintax, Honeywell Pintax lens. All right. 50 millimeter lens. And that was it. And I had three rolls of uh, Kodachrome film. I had, no, two rolls of Kodachrome, one roll of Ektachrome. I think I only had 90 slides to deal with. Wow. And, you know, now with digital, it's like you throw in the chip and you got 5,000 pictures. Yeah, exactly. Uh, it did, I think, it, photographers at the time, like we really did have to really place our shots. You and, had to d- get it right the first time. Y- yeah, yeah, for sure. Uh, you couldn't yeah. just point and shoot. But also, because of that, uh, the pictures are rare. Mm-hmm. And now they wouldn't be as rare. They would be probably... Millions Lots of pictures of taken, right. you know, everybody's right. got pictures. Um, but it, it did factor in. And then since I didn't have pictures of the Democratic National Convention, um, we purchased uh, pictures from Associated Press mm-hmm. of that, that stuff. One. So you can actually, if when you look at the book, uh, there's pictures of the uh, United States Army actual MPs with loaded guns in front of the crowd. And then later, uh, on the next page, we have... The same guys with gas mask and fixed bayonets. Fixed bayonets uh, mm. against civilians. I don't really think they're supposed to do that. Mm, but, no. Uh, wow. The uh, land of the free. Well, Richard Daly thought he owned Chicago, mm-hmm. and uh, he wasn't very happy with this. Mm-hmm. Um, I was not at the Democratic National Convention. Otherwise, I probably had my own pictures. Uh, <laughs> but mm-hmm. it did really up the stakes i think that what had been a pretty much a peaceful attempt to get the establishment's attention uh, to do with the vietnam war specifically uh really had gone totally wrong Mm -hmm. and i think that radicalized a lot of us to up the game as far as our resistance to the establishment as it was called at the Mm -hmm. time Mm mm-hmm well, there's one photograph uh, in the book that I think is really amazing, and that's the front cover. And I'd like to play just a quick uh, oh, tune dedicated to Janice Joplin. The Pearl. Yep, live from Woodstock. It's so chopping now. Hey, the cotton You're in the middle of Shift Happens Empower Hour. I screwed up at the beginning and said Flower Power Hour. For those of you who only listen on Sunday, if you actually tune in on Tuesday an hour earlier, you'll listen to our awesome tunage that we play. And I mean awesome. Anyway, we have Greg Walter with us, and he actually wanted to share his opinion of... And is it a high opinion or a low opinion of Janis Joplin? Well, I don't think it could get much higher, <laughs> being said it's Janis. Um, I want to take you higher. Um, I was just mentioning that of all the performances that I saw during that era, I think she was the most electrifying in that when she came on stage, there was just something about her energy that just grabbed you like mm-hmm. right away, even before she even started singing. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think she's really made that great a role model, uh, but she sure is popular. 
And the picture is awesome. I didn't take the picture. It was taken by Henry Diltz, who's actually quite a famous photographer. He did all the Doors stuff, all the early right. L.A. stuff. Right. And when I saw the picture, I really wanted it, and I didn't know who took it. And so I got in touch with Lisa Law, who was the founder of the Hog Farm. Right. Uh, she's sort of like the godmother of our movement, pretty much. Mm-hmm. And she saw oh, Henry took that. Here's her phone number, his phone number. And so I talked to him, and I actually met him a couple times after that. R- really great guy. And he doesn't remember taking the picture. Uh, he said, no. you know, I don't actually remember, but it is an incredible picture. And uh, we used it on the cover, and it's pretty cool. Mm-hmm. And she did a great set at Woodstock, actually. What night did she play, or Saturday, what day? Well, Sunday morning, technically okay. Saturday night. That okay. was the big lineup that night, and you know, Credence and all that. So how did that go? And It started at what time on Friday? Friday, I Ish. believe that we got Richie Havens on at about 6.37. It was supposed to be 4, and... Um, it was pretty crazy, so we just asked him to keep playing. Right. And it, it, so he was pretty burnt out after about 40, 45 minutes, and they said, please keep playing. We are not ready for this at all. <laughs> right. And so it was it was pretty crazy. Mm-hmm. But the great thing is when Richie started playing, there was going to be a festival. Because before he started playing, we didn't know if we were going to get shut down. Uh, Nelson Rockefeller was going to declare it a, a disaster area which he actually did declare it a disaster area, but he was a fairly pragmatic man. I actually lived under his governorship for quite a while when I lived in New York State. And he realized that having a half a million kids running around Sullivan County all ticked off that they weren't get to hear the music and create havoc. Right. They would create havoc. So he said, just keep them all contained. And the promoter said, we're going to keep the music going. It was a free festival as of Friday night, because the fences weren't working, and it was not working out. So they declared it a free festival. And the reason that they were able to do that was uh, they cut a deal with Warner uh, Records, Warner, you know, yeah, yeah. Warner Brothers, yep. and to film and record the event. And when the performers signed on to do Woodstock, they gave up those rights, not realizing what they were giving up, because that was before much music and all that kind of thing. Right. And so in the end, they were able to, I think we were $2.3 million in the hole at the end of the festival. Youch, and, and that's, that's a lot of dove for back then, uh, right? For 1969? Say, well, based on the minimum wage then was uh, $14, uh, four, $1.40 an hour. Now it's 14 so 10 times at least, yeah, 23 $25 million, which, whatever. But they ended up making money. So. Did they? Oh, yeah, Warner's made a lot of money, and I imagine that the promoters made some money, too, in the end. Right. But it was well-financed in that John Roberts, one of the promoters, had a lot of money, and he just kept cutting checks. And you got to give him credit for that. He yeah, didn't. we had to fly in cash. Uh, the Who wanted $10,000 at 4.30 Sunday morning, and somehow we found <laughs> it. And, <laughs> and uh, Jimi Hendrix, actually, this is a story that nobody has ever heard. And yeah. I'll give you an absolute... For Kootenai Co-op Radio listeners, no one, I think, has ever heard this story because I got it. I was talking to the head accountant for Woodstock Ventures. I don't know why I was talking to her. It was during the process of putting the book together. Right. And she told me about getting a call on a Sunday afternoon, and it was Jimi Hendrix Management. 
and they said Jimmy is very nervous about this whole situation it seems very chaotic and he's thinking about not coming and she says oh okay that's fine he says I'm going to go down to the stage right now and tell a half a million people that uh, Jimmy Hendrix is not coming to the festival because he's scared <laughs> <laughs> there was silence at the end of the phone and, yeah. and then within uh, a minute uh, the guy said Jimmy said he's going to go <laughs> so there you go uh, that's so the accountant that'll, that'll, is responsible. That'll offend uh, Jimi Hendrix fans, though, because he shouldn't have been afraid, right? Uh, well, I don't actually blame him. I mean, yeah. the helicopter ride alone. Right. Because we had no traffic. Uh, everything had to go in and out on helicopters. Uh, all the evac, uh, performers, VIP. And we had, I think Woodstock had at least 14 helicopters. We had press helicopters. We had National Guard. We had U.S. Army. Uh, New York State Police, all with no ground control, flying right over the stage. Wow. That's kind of dangerous right there, I think. Yeah. And loud, too. Oh, how do, yeah. How do you listen with helicopters flying directly <laughs> yeah. overhead? I got a few pictures in the book of, of people shaking cans and cheering on the helicopters. They, they kind of just became part of the whole right. <laughs> motif, so to speak. Right. Yeah. I was thinking about how much money was involved in flying everybody in and out. I mean, that would be huge nowadays. Oh, yeah, I'm sure it was. And and they, uh, after the festival, we weren't really sure if we were going to get paid. And then, lo and behold, when we got our next paycheck, they actually paid us for overtime, uh, $25 a day overtime for during the festival. So Wow. Uh, they took super good care of us. I, uh, Michael Lang and, and the promoters, they, they were really people people mm -hmm. and uh, didn't just take anybody for granted. And right. uh, consequently, I think that all the people that worked at Woodstock, uh, we we really put out the effort. So they didn't make you starve like they did the attendees, eh? Uh, well, they didn't make the attendees starve. And yeah. actually, there was food available pretty much the whole event at the hog farm. Okay. It wasn't fancy. It was like oatmeal and brown rice and stuff like that. Any hog? Hmm? Well, it was a hog farm, right? You know, it's funny. I, I They're mostly vegetarian. I don't know why they call it a <laughs> okay. hog farm. But, um, yeah, it, we did have uh, our... We had a tent set aside for us for, for sleeping and, and uh, mess and everything, but they turned over half of it into an evac center. Um, so, you know, hmm. we didn't try to sleep there or anything, but, but they managed to have food for us anyway. Right. And, and you had, for the whole event, you well, prior to the event, while you were working there, they had a whole hotel for, mm -hmm. for the staff, right? Yep. And they yep. were providing you with all your meals. Mm -hmm. And they sounded amazing. Oh, man. They treated us so good. And the pay was, I'd say, triple minimum wage. And we were working six and a half days a week, so we didn't have time to spend any money. We didn't need to. Um, so, yeah, it was. And it's really kind of cool when you think that here they are paying you bonuses, and they know they've just gone in the hole in a big way. But they've gone above and beyond the call of duty. Like, to me, that, that shows integrity. Oh, definitely. Yeah, definitely. And I think in the back of the mind, they knew they were going to get the money back off the movie, but they couldn't be absolutely sure. Right. They had to dip into their own pockets to pay us because obviously mm -hmm. the royalties didn't kick in for at least a year. Mm -hmm. But but it, they could have had a justifiable excuse. They could have said, well, we didn't make any money on it, so sorry, guys. I suppose so. I mean, it was all like a real-life job, like we, you know, yeah. income taxes and Social Security right. and all like really normal type stuff. Mm -hmm. you know? So, But... As far as how much work we did, I, I did allude to leaving the festival at 
2 o'clock Monday morning. And uh, the only excuse that I have is that uh, because the hotel almost burned down Thursday night, and then Friday and Saturday and Sunday we were on site, so I think I figured out I got a total of around eight hours sleep from Thursday morning until Monday morning at 2. Wow. Roughly. Operating on adrenaline at that point. Pretty much, you know, and uh, people say, oh, did you do drugs at the festival? And to be honest with you, I didn't need to do drugs, you know, at yeah, the I festival. Mean, I mean, the, the energy of the, of the place would yeah. have been amazing, right? Yeah. Yeah. Plus, you know, there had to be a certain amount of integrity because yeah. we, you know, a handful of us were kind of responsible for half a million people. You want to make sure you've got all your wits about you. As as much as possible, yeah. definitely. So have you done other events? I mean, there's several musical events that go on around here. Um, I think about, I mean, I've always wanted to go to Burning Man, which is not technically a, well, I guess according to the way um, Janis Joplin's track is called Live at the Woodstock Music and Art Fair. Mm-hmm. So technically, I think that's what Burning Man would be. Have you ever been to those kinds of events? And if so, how did they compare to Woodstock? I went to one rainbow gathering once. Oh, yeah. It was interesting. I never did Burning Man. Um, I did. I played at uh, quite a number of festivals, uh, including uh, one that was pretty similar in its own microcosm way of, of, Bar- of uh, Woodstock. And that was the Barnes Creek Fair in Edgewood, uh, Sky okay. Fairs. Which they started out with a caravan, and then they kind of found a home in Edgewood in 1976. And every year we'd have our own right. little community and festival. And I actually ran uh, security, uh, night security, indoor stage security for that festival for quite a number of years. Mm-hmm. And it, I think there is a common thread to every festival. Uh, Unity Festival, Starbelly, Woodstock, Burning Man. Like there is a common sort of thread mm-hmm. right uh mind you woodstock was quite interesting because it wasn't technically a free festival like once they right. declared it that and it did create kind of a different like somebody's holding this party for us mm-hmm. yeah and it also eliminated some problems that we could have had with uh, some of our activist brothers and sisters, as they <laughs> call mm-hmm. them in the book, uh, Abby Hoffman and and um, a group out of New York, which I don't think I can say the name because it's daylight, but they were Mother Oh, yeah. Right. Yeah. Just what was that again? Mother Ers. What was that? the word F word. In there. What F word? Just kidding, just kidding. Yeah, they were... Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah, whatever. Um, Other fudgers. Yeah, and uh, they kind of okay. came around, uh, uh, especially once it was a free festival. It took the wind out of their sails as calling right. it a capitalist uh, right. intervention or something like that. Mm-hmm. So that is, that's kind of, you know, the back line is how hard everybody worked. I know the stage crew was working 20-hour days uh, for at least the last 10 days trying to get that stage together. But right. They overshot their mark. They they were trying to do too much. The stage was just too big, and mm-hmm. there was a carousel that was supposed to turn the bands around, and that never got going. So they were probably doing a little too much uh, LDS themselves. Well, it was a in really the creation process. Stage. No, actually, they weren't. Yeah. Uh, but they were doing a lot of uh, straight vitamin B twelve. Ah, okay, from all my, right. From my all understanding, right. I I talked to them a few times, and they they looked like they were pretty burnt out. 
Right. <laughs> so did you get to meet anyone famous? Uh, no. Not at, well, Abby Hoffman, sort of. But yeah. I didn't talk to him. But I was standing next to Abby Hoffman when The Who was setting up. And I was doing the photographer pit security, so you know, right. the fence, and then about six feet, roughly, and then up a little bit is the stage, right? So I'm standing there, and there's this guy, and I noticed that he didn't have any credentials or anything, like nothing, mm-hmm. nothing to identify him, that he should be there. But I knew he'd gotten through six levels of security, so I didn't say anything, and I was just about to say something, and then he did whatever security guy's nightmare is. He jumped up from my position and jumped on the stage and grabbed Pete Townsend's microphone and says, I think all this is BS, while John Sinclair sits rotting in jail. And John Sinclair was a, a young person who had gotten sentenced to like eight years in jail for a joint or something right. ridiculous like that. And then Townsend came over and bumped him off the stage, <laughs> gently actually, and then he just stood there. And I, it was months later before I realized it was Abby Hoffman. That's how he got away with it. But hmm. I, generally the performers, like at any festival you're going to find, um, and I've noticed this as a performer at festivals, we generally want to get in there, see a few people, do our set, and get the heck out of there. Because it's just, you're so focused on your performance. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so they had their own area. But I, I also, the... the the cult of personality wasn't as much then with mm-hmm. our artists. We yeah. Didn't, we didn't... Didn't turn them into gods like we do really. nowadays. No, I, yeah. and I think that in a way that was good in that we knew Janice had her flaws. And, yep. and we certainly knew Jim Morrison had even more flaws. <laughs> yeah. You know, Jimi Hendrix had no flaws, though. Uh, other than fairly conspicuous drug use, <laughs> yeah. um, he stayed quite apolitical. Yeah. Uh, he managed to avoid the whole uh, black-white discussion, although, you know, some people in the black community did get on his case for making all this music for white people, and he just basically tried to say that he was, he was colorblind and he didn't yeah. really know what he was doing. He was just making this music, and that was what he was doing. Yeah. Uh, but the whole movement was actually far more apolitical than, than I think people realize. We, there wasn't that many of us that really wanted to change society more. We wanted our own society. We wanted yeah. just to create something. And it was kind of like, we'll alone. leave you alone. You mm-hmm. leave us alone. But Be they, the change that you want to be. But they did not leave us alone. Yeah. And well, like, because you were so radically different, well, and right? Well, because of the numbers. I think we were yeah. a threat. Yeah. yeah. You were a threat because if... If that many people were able to create their own society, it would have shifted everything. As usual, the beauty of co-op radio is you can burn through an hour right away. But I do want to point out one thing. This is going to be kind of my introduction to the discussion uh, on uh, December 6th with, at the Hume Hotel. Right. Values of the subculture, counterculture, Woodstock generation, which is a term I generally do not use, but it's one of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, the sex, drugs, and rock and roll part of it definitely got incorporated into society. Now, there had been sex and drugs before we came along, and there had been forms of rock and roll, at least called bebop or something. Yeah. But the three values that I saw in our culture that did not get adopted were, one, minimalism. Right. Which where you get the back to the land movement coming out of. Mm-hmm. You don't consume more than you could 
than you need. Of course, that runs very counter to Western economy, which is dependent upon mm -hmm. consumerism. I think minimalism is, is having a resurgence, though. But by the way, uh, Cyber Monday, mm -hmm. they were expecting $6.5 billion worth of sales in America mm -hmm. alone just in one day. Yeah, speaking That's of not the minimalism. economy. Well, I, 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 I do want to touch on what you said. Minimalism. Yeah. All of these values that I'm saying, they have not gone away. No. Yeah. And if they're being a resurgence, that's more than fine with me. Yeah. Uh, the second one, when I look at it, I would have to use the word inclusion. Mm -hmm. In other words, it didn't matter if somebody came along and they were wearing a suit it didn't matter if they were gay. It didn't matter if they were black or green or did it just they were everybody was welcome in. Right now, how they fit in and how long they stayed or what part they played in the counterculture was more up to them mm -hmm. than it was up to us. But inclusion was another very important thing. I, I can never remember a case of being on any commune or in any of our alternative communities where somebody was rejected based on the way they talked or where they lived or or whatever and the third one is what i call open-ended spirituality right instead of being defined into one religion mm -hmm. we were discovering things from the Tao. we were discovering things from all kinds of different it's just a sort of open-ended that was the beginning of bringing Buddhism into North American culture, too, mm -hmm, I think. Mm -hmm. But in that, all ideas had... Validity. Validity, or there was a commonality in spirituality without having to, mm -hmm. to slot yourself into. And those are the three big ones, anyway. What but, about pacifism? Well, I think that was kind of in the inclusion and in the minimalism uh Pacifism, now that's very interesting because a lot of us were not hardcore pacifists. Okay. Uh, we were against the Vietnam War. Mm -hmm. But a lot of us couldn't get conscientious objector status, myself included, because I would not swear that I would never go to war under any circumstances. I would never take up arms under any circumstance. I, I, I'm sorry, I just couldn't go there. Right. So, yes, pacifism, but they called it selected pacifism. So it. It was there, but I don't think it was one of our core... Oh, uh, you know that iconic image again of the, the daisy in the barrel of a gun? For me, that is one of the sort of symbols of pacifism, is that oh, definitely. image. Yeah, definitely. And, and not to say that the pacifism wasn't a large part of the, of the movement. Mm -hmm. I'm just saying that it wasn't quite as completely pervasive because some of us were actually just aghast at the Vietnam War. Mm -hmm. right. And you have to remember that my generation was the one that came out of the quote-unquote great generation who had gone over to World War II, my dad included. Yeah. So we actually had a lot of respect for those people, mm -hmm. hence not completely pacifist. Right. And you did end up getting drafted. I was supposed to go into the United States military, and I didn't. So I, be, I was actually uh, New York federal grand jury indicted me for federal felony, which Hence, Jimmy Carter gave me a pardon. Cool. So I and thought so. The so, reason why you're in the Kootenays, right? 
coming I to Canada? I think, you know, to be honest with you, and I can't be sure, but I think my wife and I would have moved to Canada even if I hadn't gotten that draft notice just because we didn't want to raise our children in the hostility that right. existed in American culture at that time. Right. So we've got a few minutes left by, before I play this last file, but mm-hmm. as you know, the name of our show is Shift Happens, and you've talked about a lot of the shifts that happened in society since Woodstock. What about you personally in two minutes or less? Directly to do with Woodstock? Yeah, just the whole experience. What spin-off effect did it have on your life? Well, I'd probably have to use the same answer I used on Julie Cohen's uh, Woodstock, uh, Back to Woodstock, the NBC Dateline uh, special. And I knew that the premise of that show was about how Woodstock changed people. And I think the answer I gave on that, and I, I think it's the, is that because there were so many people there that were similar to myself, it, it emboldened me. It gave me more confidence that I wasn't alone in this venture. And I think that was probably, for a lot of the people that were there, that was the takeaway. It was not necessarily that it changed our direction or changed our thinking or changed our philosophy it was more that it it certified that wait a minute i'm not just the only kid me and my three or four you know quote-unquote hippie friends in high school we're not alone here mm-hmm. right we're big mm-hmm. you made it made you realize that you were a part of a movement not just a, a individual group of yeah and it was separate than the peace movement i mean i saw the peace movement we could get out half a million people on a peace rally. But this was different. This was a a music celebration of the arts, a celebration of culture, a celebration of our lives. And it was this positive, and even under the terrible conditions, people were smiling and helping each other out and and not complaining. It was, Mm -hmm. that was, and like I said, that fact, and, and that there was no violence or thefts that I know of and, that's the big takeaway, I think. Mm-hmm. Well, thanks a lot, Greg. It's been really interesting well, talking to you. Well, remind the listeners about the yeah. upcoming... Greg is going to be doing a talk at the Hume Hotel, Fred Hume Room, on Wednesday, December 6th. Uh, the doors open at 5.30. There's a book reading at 7 and a discussion at 9. And it's going to be all about Woodstock and the subculture and its current relevance. So yeah. check it out. It's a fundraiser for Kootenai Co-op Radio. It is basically the cost of the book, $35, including a personally signed book, or $45 if you bring a guest. So he'll sign it, and he's going to do the talk for free. There man, you, oh if you Yeah, you can hang out with me for free. Uh, tickets, uh, advanced tickets are at Eddie Music and Kootenai Co-op Radio and Nelson Gale Foods in Winlaw. And we will have door sales uh, from 5, but only till 6.45. And then we're shutting the door sales down because we're doing the book reading. So Besides, doors are pretty so big for them to carry back in their vehicles, right? Yeah. Be there or oh. be square? Yes. No, be a triangle. That's a square okay. with something missing. Okay. Anyway. How about, how about be a sphere? sphere. <laughs> okay. <laughs> we're all into shapes today. There you go. In the bubble. Mm-hmm. Well, anyway, this has been a totally enjoyable interview. Greg, thanks for coming in. Oh, thanks for having me. It's, it's been a pleasure hanging out with you. Well, we'll have to do this again. I hope so. All right. So that's our show for November 28th. 
And on Sunday, whatever Which date is, that is. Yeah, December whatever. Three o'clock. It's always December at three. December 5th, I think. And uh, coming up next is Oye on Tuesday and Songwriters and Covers on Sunday. So we'll see you next week. And have now departed. And the dairy farm where they listen to three days of rock music is quiet, except for the normal sounds of cows mooing. Here's a report on the last of the vibrations from ABC's Gregory Jackson. Last night, the traffic was immense. But somehow, between dark and dawn, when the music finally stopped, they disappeared across the country. Although thousands remained on the rented 600-acre dairy farm, pitching in on the cleanup detail or just waiting out the crowd. The festival site is nestled in the heart of the Catskills Resort area. The biggest town nearby is Monticello. And the townspeople, quite frankly, were terrified at the prospect of the hippie arrival. But before it was over, something happened in Monticello. Residents and resorts freely emptied their cupboards for the kids. Merchants were stunned by their politeness. Polite. Uh, that's about what I can say about them. They're polite kids. But you didn't sell many shoes. No, not too many, but uh, they were happy here. I, th I think they are really a wonderful group of kids. Uh, I've never met so many kids in such large numbers that were so polite, so patient, so courteous, and understanding on, under certain these conditions that we had here in the last three days. Certainly in the beginning there was a great deal of apprehension, but right now uh, I can say that the attitude of the town is change towards these young men and women. They uh, took a lot of aggravation and inconvenience that the average adult wouldn't take. Unfortunately, because much of the press coverage was so jaundiced in its reports of what happened here, not many people in the country will have learned what Monticello learned. Suffice it to say that it was not a disaster area. There were 450,000 young people here, an instant big city really, with no conveniences, few police, but no violence not even arguments in the midst of a 12-hour traffic jam. It's true one may not ask for the names of the tailors of these youngsters, but would anyone care to venture a guess about what would have happened if 450,000 well-dressed businessmen were thrown together for three days under similar circumstances? This is Gregory Jackson, ABC News, in Bethel, New York. Admittedly, there was marijuana, as well as music at the rock festival, but there was also no rioting. What did not happen at that dairy farm is possibly more significant than what did happen. Walking up.